0: Welcome one more time to Encounter Church. My name is Derek, preaching pastor here at Encounter, and we are in part four of this series uh, called Asking for a Friend. This is the finale of the series, Uh, so I just want to kind of like recap uh, a bit on on all the questions that we've been asking. Uh, Listen, I hope And pray that this series has been helpful to you to kind of ask these questions that maybe you've been thinking about or maybe you haven't been thinking about it and you just heard the question and you're like, I should be thinking about that. Uh, Hopefully this series has been helpful maybe to somebody that you know and you could send uh, the link over to somebody asking some of these questions to grapple with it a little more deeply. But listen to me, even if... Even if you like look back at this whole thing and you forget everything, every last bit of content, you remember nothing. And I know that wouldn't happen at Encounter, right? Because we believe a dull pencil is better than a sharp mind, right? So you wrote kinds of stuff down, whatever that was. But even if you forgot every part of the content of this series, hopefully at least leaves you with a sense that whatever questions you have, that God wants you to bring those. Right? That God doesn't want you just to, like, check those at the door and say, no, 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 you're not allowed to ask any of those questions in this faith. No, no, no. We want you to ask those questions. We want you to voice those, to bring them up in your small groups, bring them up with staff, people, anybody else around here, and say, hey, listen, I'm struggling with this idea. I'm struggling with wondering how to whatever, whatever it is. So this morning, we asked this final question, this big one, this big question that I think more people have walked away from the faith over this question than probably any other question that the question that we're asking is this: How can a good God allow such pain? Right? How could a good God allow such pain, allow such awful things to happen there's so much trouble in this world? It said that pain and struggling, suffering, whatever, it's one of the most universal human experiences there is. You could come from all over. You could come from anywhere. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter your background, your race. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status, where you're born, how privileged you were to be born there. Like, whatever it is, just, just pain makes no discernment over any of those. It visits everybody at one point or another. It doesn't matter if you're like a big truck guy who doesn't zipper or or somebody like me who maybe doesn't try. That was a reference to last week. You can listen to it online, right? It doesn't matter if you pronounce it jiff or wrong. You know, you're welcome here. (laughs) And uh, and pain, right? It visits everybody equally no matter what. But what a lot of people do with it when it visits, a lot of people take that as a reason to say, I guess I have to choose now whether or not God is good or whether or not God is God. Because a good God, who's also powerful in God, wouldn't allow such pain, wouldn't allow suffering like this to happen. And so what ultimately ends up happening is that we just kind of like step back and walk away. Because the pain is just too much. Well, we want to speak into that this morning. And I just want to kind of share one of, one of Jesus, uh, one of my favorite stories uh, that Jesus did because it's just, it's just so bizarre and it's just so weird. You think nobody would ever make a story like this up, but it, it happens um, when Jesus was uh, amassing was these massive crowds uh, behind him, following his teachings. They're so interested in what he was saying. They're probably even more honestly interested in what he's doing. He's turning water to wine, right? He's, he's feeding the 5,000. He's doing these incredible things. And then, and then when he has everybody's attention and everybody's looking at him and, and everybody's like hanging on every word, The teaching that he gives them that afternoon is this, that unless you eat from my body and drink from my blood, you have no place with me. And all of a sudden, right, they had the same reaction. (laughs) Like, what? (laughs) I'm sorry, like, can we go back to like the miracles and the feeding and the healing of the blind people and stuff? Can we go back to that again? All of a sudden, right, what happened, it got weird, it got really weird. What in the world is Jesus talking about? And so what happened? Everybody just starts leaving and they just start like walking away. Like, listen, I don't know. I, I was with you, but I'm not, I'm not touching that thing, right? And so everybody just walks away except for a few. And Jesus turns to those few, his disciples, and he goes, what about you guys? Are you two going to leave? And I love when one of them, what Peter says. He gives us the response. He says, Jesus, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. In a sense, he's saying, Jesus, I have no bucket to put that weird statement in. I have no scaffolding mentally to like understand what in the world you're talking about with the body and the blood thing. I have no concept. But Jesus, where else am I going to go? What are my other options? And so I just want you to kind of consider that as we ask this question together is, is how can a good God allow such pain? Because sometimes pain comes and we're like, listen, I am out. I'm refusing to believe there's a, a God who is both God and good at the same time when, when so much pain exists. So we just want to like wash our hands with it and say, I guess it's all just random. I guess it's all just atoms smashing into each other. I guess it's all just kind of a genetic lottery that some people are winning at and some people are losing at. I guess there's nothing, there's no meaning or there's no no." justice. There's no anything behind it all. It just is what it is. Where are you going to go to that? One, one guy did. His name is C.S. Lewis. He, uh, was a, um, he was a professor at the University of Oxford in the early 20th century, and he was a staunch atheist, mostly because of what he experienced in World War I and then leading up to what we now know as World War II. And one of the things he did is he looked at all the, all the tragedy in the world, all the injustice in the world. He goes, how could, again, that same question, a good God allow those things to happen? And so he just like, nope, I don't want anything to do with any of that. And he, and he embraced atheism as a result. Until he started thinking about it a little bit further beyond that, right? Until he started thinking, like, listen, wait a second. If I'm right and there's no God at the center of anything, it also means that I'm right and everything is just sort of like random atoms smashing into each other. If I'm right and there's no God behind any of it, I guess it's also true that I don't have a right to protest. I don't have a right to complain. I don't have a right to, to say, listen, there's injustice in the world and somebody, somewhere, sometime should do something about it. And he goes, deep down, I think that there is a sense of justice in the world. Deep down, I think that we all want to believe. We all have to believe. We do believe that there is a sense of both justice and injustice. And maybe we experience our need for justice most when something really, really unjust, when something really, really unfair happens. And we want to have somebody to protest to and to say, Do something about it. And that's what I love about the story of God that we call the Bible because it's a collection of a lot of different letters, a lot of different books. And this is not a theological treatise explaining or justifying, rationalizing a good, all-powerful God in light of evil in the world. No, 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 the Bible doesn't do that. It's not a series of proofs or theorems or philosophical propositions. The Bible is a collection of people who have experienced pain, a collection of people who have suffered, a collection of people honestly like us, who have taken all of this pain and all of this suffering and have brought it up to God and to say, I don't know where else to go. What are you going to do about it? And he answers, And one of the answers that we're going to go to is in a letter that Paul wrote to one of his churches that he cared so deeply about, and he knew them well. We have to know, in the context of what's happening, because this is going to be some challenging words, that he knew this church so well and cared for this church and shed tears for and with this church, and they knew him well, too. If you have a Bible, you can flip to uh, to second Corinthians, we're gonna to go to second Corinthians four. Again, as you heard in our next steps video, we're phone friendly church. So if there's like blue screen over your face, That's awesome. It's probably the Bible app, so we're going to go with that. Uh, There's also Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. You can flip to, uh, we can flip to the passage that way, and the words are going to be on the screen. 2 Corinthians 4, and we're going to camp out in just three verses today, 16, 17, and 18. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 starts off, therefore, Paul says, therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly, he acknowledges, we are wasting away, yet inwardly inwardly we're being renewed day by day. We have to start a conversation about pain with that opening line, the acknowledgement that Paul gives to say like, listen, it's like we're wasting away little by little. The image that I get that this brings up for me is like, playing on a beach somewhere, and maybe it's like building sandcastles, maybe it's digging a hole, I don't know, like whatever your favorite, like there's probably a personality inventory somewhere in there, but but like you're you're building something, or you're digging something, and maybe there's kids around, or maybe not, I don't know, And, and the tide starts to come in. And you know, you know what happens if you've been out on the beach all day and the tide starts to come in, the waves start coming, and, and they come up like more and more all the time. And then so you're building something or digging something, and, and the like unstoppable water force starts to come in and wave by wave. And it hits the castle or fills the hole. And like slowly but surely, like that castle, the hole, it wastes away. And it's all brought back to that like original state of sand on the seashore. Just like did nothing there. It's like no progress. Nothing was built at all. And Paul's like, that kind of feels like what it's like when, when I'm trying to build something with my life, it's just like wave after wave. The tide is coming in and anything that I've spent time building at, it's like the wave after wave just eroded it away and slowly but surely, it's wasting away. Paul goes, yeah, I know what that's like. This other letter that he wrote in the book of Philippians, he's, he's writing about what it's like to have almost lost a close dear friend of his, Epaphroditus. And he's saying, listen, when, when Epaphroditus was dying, it's like my soul was being like like wasted away and just was wrought bare in the pain of, of watching him essentially die right there. He, he writes this in, in Philippians. He says, indeed, Epaphroditus was ill and he almost died. But God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me. And he goes, to spare me, and I love this phrase, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Sorrow upon sorrow. Those of you who have experienced a particular kind of loss, like death, you know that there's an element there that's sorrow. Sorrow. But then there's like this whole other layer on top of that that's like sorrow on that sorrow. There's like this this loss of not being with them anymore. But then there's like this sorrow on top of that to say, on this side of heaven, I'll never see them again. It's sorrow, but there's like sorrow on top of that sorrow. Some people writing this see this as a a nautical term, actually. Uh, They see this as like those waves that I mentioned earlier billowing in. Like the sorrow upon sorrow is like wave after wave that's hitting them. And Paul's writing, and no doubt, no doubt Paul has experienced this grief in the past, and he's writing about this moment, and he's going, you know, it's sorrow, wave after wave hitting me. That's grief. And some of you have experienced grief, grief like that. You're like, yeah, that's the waves that come. That's the wave. Sometimes when you're bracing for impact and a wave comes, and it knocks you off your feet. Even though you know it's coming, it's so much more powerful than you thought. And all of a sudden it comes, it hits you. And then you're disorientated. And it knocks you off your feet and you don't know what's up, what's down. You think down is up and up it's down. And you're all disorientated in your mind. And finally, maybe you find ground and you spring up and you <gasps> gasp for air. And you get a breath only just before another wave comes and smacks you down. And the whole thing happens. That's grief. That's sorrow upon sorrow. And you best, not, you best not turn your back to the ocean, to the waves. Because if you do, one will catch you that you had never expected before. One person, Levi Lusko, who wrote the book uh, Through the Eyes of a Lion, he's writing about the, the time that he walked into his kitchen and his daughter, 10 years old, was having an asthma attack. And he reaches for the inhaler, something that they've done countless times previously, only this time was the only time it didn't work. And he remembers being in high school as a youth leader, and and he he was learning CPR, and so he immediately starts chest compressions one after another. After getting to the hospital, a doctor walked out of the room and said, There is nothing else we can do. And he writes, he says, it's sorrow upon sorrow. I can brace for the impacts that I know are coming on her birthday, on the anniversary of her death. But then a wave of sorrow comes at a random 4th of July grill out. And it completely disorients me sorrow upon sorrow. And it's like my heart, my life, anything good I'm trying to build in this world is being wasted away. But somehow through it all, there's like a renewal. Outwardly, I'm being wasted away, but but like inwardly, Inwardly, something is happening. Something is going on beneath the surface. It's like the the pain isn't wasted. Inwardly, I'm being renewed. Uh, Paul continues in verse 17, the very, very next verse in our passage, and he says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. I just want to be as clear as I can that when, when he calls those troubles light and momentary, that is less of a statement or a comment on the troubles of a dying friend and more a statement on the eternal glory that far outweighs and is coming. That's what Paul hung on to. He knew, he knew not to make light of the things of this world that hurt us. Uh, keep in mind, this was a church he knew well, and that, he, and that they knew him well. This was a church, this, this was a guy writing to a church that knew, th- this was somebody who's been, in the same letter he writes, he's been shipwrecked, he's been stoned to death twice, like figure that one out, uh, he's been whipped, he's been flogged, he's been constantly imprisoned, he's been impoverished, arrested a number of times. I mean, he has been through it. In he would be martyred for his faith. He knew this is coming. He knew this is, his life is going to end like this. He's putting it on the line constantly and saying, this is what's going to happen. He, he experiences all of this. And in the very same letter, he backs up and he goes, no, no. But considering, considering how fleeting life is, considerably, considering the few decades that we have here the two words that I would describe all of that that I've been to are light and momentary. When you weigh it up against it all, it does something. There's pain in the purpose. Even impossible pain brings this incomprehensible power I'll say it like this. Um, a number of years ago, uh, an author wrote a memoir. He had lived a tremendously hard life. His name was uh, James um, uh, Meechmer. And he writes about this. And he said he grew up on his dad's farm. And at the end of the farm on the property line, there was a different farmer, an old man. And he said he watched one day as this guy steps out of his house and he goes up to this apple tree that hadn't produced much of anything for as long as he could remember as a little kid. And he watches this farmer take out these, uh, these long, eight long, rusty spikes. And one by one, he goes, he takes the first four and he, along the base of the tree, and he just like knocks it into the heart of the tree at 90 degree angles, one on every side. And then he takes the, the next four, and this time up, just before where the trunk splits out into the branches, and he knocks, again, another four, one on each side, into the, the trunk of the tree higher up this time. And he said, that happened in springtime. That fall, there was this bumper crop of apples like I had never seen before. So I had to go up to the farmer and ask him, like, what happened, man? And the old farmer just looks at him and says, sometimes sometimes a tree like that needs to be jolted awake to be reminded to do what it's supposed to do, produce fruit. And he goes, what about those nails? Was it important that they were rusty? And the old man says, I don't know. Maybe it helped with the absorption of minerals within them. I'm not sure. Was it important that there were eight of them? No more, no less. Would one have worked? And he said, If you're going to send a message, you best be sure it's heard. (laughs) Would you have to do it again next year? A considerable jolt like that should last ten. And that was it. The pain, I mean, it has a purpose. Timothy Keller, he writes about this sort of thing and he's saying one of the, one of the ways that we see it uh, play out, one of the ways he has seen it in his book, uh, The Reason for God, he said that uh, one night he had the dream that nobody ever wants to have. It's a nightmare. It's the wake up in a cold sweat, wake up terrified at what's happening next. He wakes up and he, uh, and he firmly believed from his dream that he had just lost his family. They had all just passed away, everybody, and he was the only one left. And he said, in that agonizing moment, I'm knocked over the wave, the sorrow on sorrow. I'm disoriented. And opening his eyes and realizing what's happening, he he reaches his hand over. His wife is still in the bed next to him. He knows then as he's coming into focus and clarity that his, his kids are also in their rooms tucked safely away. Everybody's okay. And he's like, the glory in that moment of knowing that everybody is fine. Here's you, you, you don't wake up in the middle of the night and just thank God for your family unless you had think that you had just lost some of them. It's like the pain magnified the glory. If only we could see it. I mean, isn't that just the thing? If we knew how to get there, everything would be so much easier on this side. Like if we knew just exactly what the steps were that God was drawing and lining up, it would just make everything so much easier to say, okay, I'll walk in those steps as much as I don't want to, at least for now. In eternity, it will make sense and you'll explain it to me. I get that, okay, at least now I'll walk down this path. But he never, God never Promises that he'll show us. He promised that he's good. He promised that he's God. He promised that he's going to work it out. But we don't ever get to know how. We hang on to that though. Uh, Church, I'd like to teach you two different um, theological phrases. And maybe you're not a theological person. Uh, that's okay. That's fine. I'm not either. But it's important. Uh, it's, it's important. There's the, this difference between consolation and recon- or restoration. Consolation and restoration. Uh, consolation is the, is the belief that God will console us someday with the life that we never had. Restoration, on the other hand, is that belief that God will restore us to the life, honestly, that you were made for, that you've always wanted. Now, the difference is crucial because in consolation, it's this belief in other like, world religions that, like, listen, if you had it rough here, if you experienced pain here, that, that somehow on the far side, things will be made up for because of that. Like sometimes your scars will disappear, and that your life will be much better than it was previous. And the old will gone; it's dissolved like snow. It no longer exists. And God will. And the the next thing is better than this thing. That's consolation. Sometimes this creeps up even in Christianity, as we as we start to think about someday this whole world is just going to go away, and someday I'm going to go up, and I'm going to hang out in the lap of an angel, and learn how to play harp on a cloud somewhere, like like. God will console me with that and I won't have any of the troubles that I had here anymore. Listen to me. That's not our story. That's not the Bible. That's not what God shows us and the story that God told to us. The story that God told us is not one of consolation, of making up for those things. The story that God told us is one of restoration. The story that God told us to say, no, no, no. I haven't forgotten about it. I haven't forgotten about the pain I hadn't forgotten about the loss. I hadn't forgotten about the scar. I'm doing something with it. I'm not consoling you with a new reality later on. I'm restoring for you that that intention that I had the entire time. I'm building something from the rubble of all of the ugly shards in the past. I'm doing something with it. Resurrection, listen, resurrection is not a consolation of death, a resurrection is a restoration of the life that we are intended for. Get this, get this. The early church, those first followers of Jesus, they had such a hard time with this, right? Because because they wanted to be consoled of so much, they had so little going for them, and it was such a struggle, a, a hurdle to get over for them to read these first eyewitness accounts of Jesus when when he rises from the dead, resurrection. Not just he was dead a little while and then he came back. This was his his new physical and spiritual resurrection story. This was like a down payment on what's going to happen for all of us who believe in him, right? And this resurrection story that Jesus came back and it was so frustrating to those early Christians because Jesus comes back and he's still bearing the scars from his life and in his death, the Thomas story of Thomas saying, listen, unless I see the hands and side, I will not believe. And then Jesus shows up in the doubt of Thomas and he says, touch. Put your hand in my side. Stop doubting. Believe. And the hard part that they, that they had with this whole thing is to say, why the scars? If Jesus was resurrected, he could have resurrected his new glorious body any way possible. Why would he keep the marks? And the early church decided, it's a restoration story, the early church decided that somehow his scars, somehow his body was more beautiful with the scars than without Somehow there was more glory and his love was shown to be that much deeper with the scars than without. I don't believe that God will just simply ignore the pain and make it as if it never happened. I think he's going to do something with it. You're going to look at the scar and say, now it makes sense. It hurt." Then, but in light of glory, I get it, but we need to see it. You know, this is is the frustrating part in the last verse that he gives us in verse 18. He says, okay, so this is what we do. This is challenge time. This is is sending you into your week time. He goes, this is it. So by the way, fix your eyes. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, But what's unseen? Since since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I mean, that's super helpful, right? Just go out there and make sure to fix your eyes on what you can't see. That's what you call job security for preachers, because you're like, what? How am I supposed to, how am I supposed to do that? Fix my eyes, not on what's seen, but what's unseen, the eternal I love this story from 2 Kings uh, chapter 6. This story, um, a guy's name is uh, Gehazi, and uh, Gehazi is, uh, is an Old Testament guy, right? He had a, he's an important job. He was a servant to somebody who's very, very well-known. Chances are you have not heard of Gehazi, but chances are potentially you have heard of his boss, Elisha. Now, his boss, Elisha, had an incredible power, a miraculous power even as a prophet, and, and Elisha, as this prophet, had the power to listen in and to, and to hear the plans of, uh, of, of Israel's enemies in this, like a country, a whole huge distance away. And Elisha had this power of knowing what they were up to even before it happened, which, which made him a huge asset for Israel and a huge liabilities for basically everybody else. And so this other king decided we cannot have somebody like Elisha and his servant Gehazi along, around here anymore. We need them to be done and over. We're going we're gonna to finish this thing off. So he mobilizes this army and shows up right outside the door. And Gehazi, he looks out of the window and he sees hundreds of soldiers. He sees horses. He sees chariots. He sees this whole huge thing, and he sees they're just about ready to kick down the door, spill in like ants through a crack at a picnic, and, and just like like end this whole thing. And eyes in this understandable panic because he's living out the very last few moments of his life. And Elisha just looks over them, cool as a cucumber, as we say in my house, and he just kind of winks. He didn't wink, but he says, he says, don't worry don't worry, because there's more of us than there are in them. And that's how you know that ministry is a humanities degree, because it didn't involve math. <laughs> there's two of them. There's hundreds of soldiers. The soldiers are literally surrounding them on every side. And Gehazi's like, you've got to be kidding me. Two hundreds on all sides Elisha, they have us surrounded. And so Elisha, I believe, I think, he just winks again, maybe twice this time, and he prays a simple prayer. He says, Lord, open his eyes. And the good, good prayers don't have to be long. He, Lord, open his eyes, and he did. And Gehazi takes another look out, and he sees. He sees that his enemies still have him surrounded on every side, but he looks, and, and for now, the first time, Just beyond that, he sees glorious, glimmering warriors all around them. And now he looks up, and it's like they're cascading down from heaven. Because there must have been over a 100,000 of these heavenly soldiers on every side of them now. And church, the point is clear. The point, Gehazi, those angels didn't just appear. They didn't just show up. When his eyes were opened, they were there the whole time. God simply opened his eyes to see them. Some of you need to hear that today because you're in like this moment. You're in like this grief time. Or you will be at some point. Some of you need to know that because it's Saturday. I know it's not actually literally Saturday, okay? But what's Saturday? Don't don't say the day between Friday and Sunday. We know that too. Saturday. Saturday. Saturday is an important day. Saturday isn't just for, for PJs and pancakes. Saturday. Saturday is the day after Good Friday when Jesus' body stayed in the grave. Now, Sunday was coming, but the disciples, they didn't know about Sunday, so they just had Saturday. And their grief in that moment Had them surrounded. And so when you leave today, pray that Elisha prayer and to say, God, I can't see what I can't see. Open my eyes. Tell me what you see. Tell me that even though grief has me surrounded, God, you are surrounding my grief that God never promised that we wouldn't have trouble in this world. He never promised there wouldn't be pain. He never promised that you wouldn't suffer. Church, he did promise that you would never suffer alone. Can you stand up for a minute? As we head into this last, as we head into this this final song, it's one that we've done before, Another in the Fire, and I think it's gonna speak to your Saturday moment i think it's going to speak to this time when grief has you surrounded the author of this song uh chris davenport his name is he, he writes this song out of a place and he almost because of this didn't release it because he was starting to to lose faith in the words of the song now it's a it's a reference to the nebuchadnezzar story in shadrach meshach and abednego it's a reference to how they refused to bow to the idols of this world to to bow to nebuchadnezzar as god And so they were thrown into the fire, except there wasn't just three in the fire. There were four walking around in there, this mysterious fourth one. Because what do we learn? They never promised that you wouldn't suffer, but that you wouldn't suffer alone. There's four of them walking around. They come out of that fire, and they didn't even smell burned. What Chris was going through when he wrote this song was that his son, who should have been running and playing and speaking by now, wasn't. And just before they released the song, as they were still writing it, he got the official diagnosis from the doctors to say that his son has autism. And and, and listen, that in no way, I want to be clear on this, that in no way, the diagnosis in no way diminished that boy's kindness, intelligence, or in any way his awesomeness but it did mean that Chris's life would be different. It did mean that he would have to relearn or learn for the first time just how to communicate with his kid who couldn't sing and play. Not yet, not yet, he says. But as he released this song, he's like, let's sing this out for my boy who can't quite yet, because I'm not gonna bow to the idols of the world that try to tell me what success is supposed to look like, what kids are supposed to look like, what athleticism or smarts is supposed to look like, I'm not gonna bow to those kind of idols because no matter what I'm going through, he is with me. He never promised that it would be easy, but he promised me that I would not suffer alone. He promised me that there will always be another in the fire. Let's sing it out.